0: Good morning. hope all of you are doing well. I hope you are all as excited as the Harvey household is getting ready for Christmas. Um, It is exciting for me to see our children uh, just look under the tree, uh, try to sneak away by picking up a gift and shaking it to find out what it is. Um, I have not had the heart to tell them all of them are getting bricks and coal this year, so that's why they all feel a little heavier so, uh, no, that's not true at all. Um, I think our kids are really going to enjoy Christmas this year, even though I think for us, as many of you all, Christmas is just going to look a little bit different for each of us this year in light of just the times and the situations that we are living in. But in the meantime, we are now wrapping up our Advent season by really focusing uh, on our final aspects of Advent. And today we're going to particularly focus on love. Now, again, If you've not picked up on the general theme of this particular Advent season, we are clearly focused on the second coming of Jesus Christ, which we as believers know is a date and a time that is unknown, but a moment that hopefully all of us are longing for as believers and followers of Jesus Christ. So as we wait, we focus on this season to be reminded of what it was that God has done through us uh, excuse me done through Jesus Christ for us uh, today. so in our passage in our text we are literally going to focus on God's covenant love for his people. So our goal for our passage as we begin, as I hope and pray that we begin to see how God made a covenant with David and with his people, and that covenant was to bless him and to bless them, and for David and the people of Israel to then be a blessing to those around them. So ultimately what we're going to get at and what we're going to see is God's steadfast and faithful promise to love His chosen people. Now often if you're like me, you have a tendency to think through uh, the different words and I have a tendency in the Advent season to begin thinking through each aspect of Advent and what that means for us. And so when I begin thinking on the word love, often for myself and for those that I know as we've uh, had conversations about it, we often tie the word love to the word enough. You see, we live in a society that drives us to live and ultimately to achieve what can be called the modern American dream. And so in the midst of trying to achieve these goals, in the midst of trying to achieve this particular American dream, we often ask ourselves, have I been good enough? We may often ask ourselves, have I worked hard enough or have I Earned enough, and then ultimately, what that does is it leads us to look back at our lives and ask the question when we look upon our families, Have I loved my family enough? Well, here's the truth you see, this word enough becomes a bit more complicated when we use it to describe our relationship with God. In fact, when we begin to think upon our relationship with God, our minds and emotions can get really messy as we begin to think to ourselves, have I done enough for God? Or better yet, maybe we ask the question, how much is enough for God? You see, at this point, as we continue to question what enough means and how it pertains to our relationship with God, if we not careful. Yes, we as believers, if we are not careful, then we can be overcome and often overwhelmed by guilt. Because the reality is if we were honest with ourselves, we will find ourselves constantly fighting the thought of saying that no matter what it is that we do or no matter what it is that we say, no matter how hard we worship or how often we come to worship or how often we serve or how often we pray, the reality is it never seems. Seems to be enough. And so these are. The thoughts, and these are uh, the questions that ultimately lead us even further down this rabbit hole into more questions like, Am I doing the will of God for my life? Is it even possible to know what God wants from me? And am I even doing enough for God as I pray and as I worship and as I serve? We begin to ask ourselves, Can I even get on good terms with God? And so ultimately what happens as we think through love and we think through what it means to, to be able to say enough, we realize that these questions can ultimately lead us into a vicious cycle that then leads us to question whether or not we even believe in God. And so you see where the thought processes are now going. And so what ultimately happens is we begin to feel guilty about even thinking upon such things. And so we we ask forgiveness of, of thinking these thoughts and then so the cycle continues for us. You see, this is not new to just us today. You see, these were the same types of questions and the same particular thoughts that David was having having as we look into our passage this morning in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You see, as we are going to see in our text today, some of the most pressing and heartfelt questions will actually be answered by the biblical truths that we are going to see in our passage. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I would encourage you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 7. And once you have found your place in the Word of God, if you can and you are able, I would invite you now to stand in honor of the reading of the Word. Now again, this is... A part of David's story, these are God's words, from 2 Samuel chapter 7, we read. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go! Go! Do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling." And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies moreover the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house and then if you skip down to verse 16 God continues and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me your throne shall be established forever let's pray together Father God, we come before you right now thanking you so much for this day and we thank you for the opportunity that we have in these next few moments just to be able to reflect on your word. Father, we ask and we pray that you would prepare our hearts today for your truth. God, coming into a a Christmas season, getting closer to Christmas Day, a day normally celebrated with our faith family, normally celebrated with family, friends, and loved ones. A day where this year in 2020 we know will be like no other. Father, we come before you right now as your people, people living in uncertain times, uncertain about our futures and our work, uncertain about our families and what happens tomorrow dealing with raw emotion of frustration and heartache and guilt. Father, I pray that in this season that we would look to you, that we wouldn't just see you, but we would grow in our faith and understanding of who you are and that we would rest today in the love that you have shown us. So, Father, prepare our hearts for these next few moments. Prepare us and give us wisdom as we seek to better understand you according to your word. And Father, we pray that for these next few moments, may you and you alone be glorified. Jesus, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you, and it's in your precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Now, as we can see in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 11, and then again in verse 16, clearly David is now the established king of Israel. Now, This might actually be one of the first times where David is literally able to to sit back to really reflect on all that has happened and probably to process and reflect a little bit on the fact that yes he is in fact the king of Israel. Now again remember by this point David has been busy fighting with an oversized Philistine army. We know by this point that David has already defeated Goliath we know that David has already been running from Saul he has been hiding in caves he has been fighting more battles and now he is the established king. And so all of a sudden, by the time we get to 2 Samuel chapter 7, the kingdom is now stable. David's enemies have been defeated and the land is now beginning to prosper as evident according to the word rest that is described in verse one of chapter seven. And so now David is going to turn his attention again to God. You see, David wanted to faithfully serve God and yet in the midst of what it was that David wanted to do for God in love, we now see God turns this Entire moment around in order to reveal his covenant love for David and for his people. Now we look at verses. 1 and 2. And here we see David, the king, finds himself in a moment with Nathan, the priest. Now Nathan can pretty much be called at this point the nation's pastor. And so here is Nathan with David looking over the city, and ultimately David's eyes fall upon the tabernacle. Now yes, this is the same tabernacle that's mentioned earlier in the Old Testament. This is the tent that God told Israel to build so that his presence could dwell with them. So clearly. Clearly, we know that this tent, this tabernacle, is obviously a few hundred years old. And so when we get to verse 2, upon looking upon the tabernacle, David says these words, "...I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent." Now David at this point acknowledges that his house has already been established. In other words, David is acknowledging that his house is nice and yet the Lord dwells in an old tent. And so David wants to do something about it. He wants to establish a permanent place for God. So we then get into verse 3. And here's what Nathan does. Nathan responds like any good pastor who has a member that wants to do something great for the church and ultimately pay for the whole thing. Nathan looks at David and says, go, do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. In other words, Nathan believes that this is truly a good idea. I mean, who wouldn't think that? I mean, think for a moment. Put yourself in the shoes of a pastor for a moment, and a member comes to you and says, Pastor, I want to renovate the entire sanctuary. You're getting new lights. You're getting updated equipment. The air condition is going to work. It's going to be a wonderful day. And guess what? I'm going to pay for the whole thing. You don't have to tell anybody I'm doing it i know right (laughs) guess what nobody said in that moment Ooh, let's think on that and pray about it no we're gonna say yes amen go do all that is in your heart for i am with you heart and soul though i sit in the office while you do all the work imagine if somebody came up to our our building and grounds team and said to our, our chairperson mary ellen mary ellen here's the deal We not only want to renovate and remodel the sanctuary and we're going to pay for the whole thing, it's not going to come out of the church budget, we're going to redo the fellowship hall and we're going to get the kitchen upgraded and then once we get done with that, we're going to move over to building B, the education building, because that's ultimately where our children and our students are going to be and we're going to upgrade that whole thing and we're going to redo the blacktop out there where the basketball courts are and the tennis courts are, we're going to put in a playground and then we're going to move over to building D and we're going to renovate the offices, it's going to be great and guess what, you don't have to tell anybody it was us, we're going to pay for the whole thing. I'm, come on steve i'm with you brother i'm quite confident that every member of our building and grounds team wouldn't even hesitate to say yes and amen let's do that i'm confident at that moment mary ellen will probably say hey you don't even have to worry about calling the pastor i'll tell him myself you see, that's where we find Nathan at this point. He was, he was saying, yes, David, this is good, this is right. Do what it is that is in your heart because you are honoring God by the work. So obviously in our first three verses, we clearly see the heart of David. We know that his heart is good and pure in this moment. We know that he's not being selfish. He Rather, he is hoping to show his love and his faithfulness to God. But then here's what happens when we get into verses 4, through 11. All of a sudden, this story is going to change directions as God is going to now lay out his plan uh, to Nathan for David. In other words, God in this moment is going to say no to what it is that David wants to do. So we see in verse 4, the word of the Lord comes to Nathan. We get to verses 5 and verses The first half of verse 7, and God tells Nathan, go and tell my servant David. Now let's pause there and pay careful attention because again, David is not found to be at fault here. Rather, we see that God is, is seeing the good in David and what it is that he wants to do. And that's why God calls David his servant. In other words, David is now being viewed in light of some very good company. In fact, when you flip through the Old Testament, we see that God refers to other prominent figures as his servant. He says the same thing of Abraham in Genesis chapter 26. He says the same of Moses in Numbers chapter 12 and Deuteronomy 34. He says the same thing of Caleb in Numbers 14 and he says it as well of Joshua in Joshua chapter 24. Now God goes on from there and he says these words, He says, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day in all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel. Now, God has clearly been with the people according to his word as they have wandered. And so here we have what several scholars and commentaries have called the incarnational principle. You see, here's where we see that God wants, that God desires to be where his people are. And in this moment in the Old Testament, he desires to be in the condition that they find themselves in. In other words, God desires to be with his people and he desires to dwell with his people. Now, by the time we get to the second half of verse 7 we see that God tells Nathan to tell David that he does not need a physical residence on this earth. This is why at this point he questions, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? You see, God reveals to David that he is not concerned about his accommodations on this earth earth. I mean, come on, we're talking about God, the creator of the universe. Why would he be concerned with his accommodations? You see, God is the one who created it all. And this is why when you flip over to Psalm chapter 50, verse 12, we read these words. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness our mind. In other words, if God wants a place to live on this earth, he doesn't need to ask David for it. He doesn't need to ask anyone for it. Rather, God would just do it himself. You see, God does not need the funding. He is the God who spoke the heavens and the earth in existence, and therefore if God chooses to build a permanent place for himself to dwell, then he will be the one to do it. Now, this is a good reminder for us today. Pay attention to what God is saying to us. God does not need us for his work. You see, whether we want to acknowledge God as sovereign, whether we want to acknowledge him as the great king, whether we want to acknowledge him as Lord, that doesn't matter because whether we acknowledge him or not he is still God that never changes and yet notice what God does God by his grace God for his glory, God for the desire of his people. He desires to use us because we see what it is that God has done for us, and therefore we now desire to serve him. And so now we jump into verses 8 through 11, and this is where God truly flips the script on David. Now again, remember, God is not angry with David, nor is he calling David out at this moment. Rather, in this particular moment, he reminds David that David is not the one who is in control, God is. You see, David was concerned about God's house, and so he wanted to build God a new one. So in this particular moment, David thought of God as a cause that was in need of good support. And so David, in doing right by himself, was going to give big for God. However, pay attention to what God says to David. He says, I... I am the one who is the giver. I am never the debtor. You will always be indebted to me. You see, here is our truth from these first 11 verses. The house of God's salvation will be constructed entirely by God. We move from there into verse 16. And in verse 16, we have uh, this passage that now bookends and, and basically becomes the summation of all that God has just spoken. So here in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 11 and verse 16, this is the story of what now happens between David and between God. So now let's go back and focus on the words and the language of this particular moment. You see, when you look back at this passage, particularly in verses 8 through 11 and verse 16, we can now clearly see the Davidic covenant being made by God to David and to his chosen people. Now notice this. Notice the covenant language does not appear here. Notice there's no usage of Covenant wording. However, when you get further into 2 Samuel, particularly in 2 Samuel 23, we see David uh, reference the everlasting covenant that was made to him by God. And he says these words in 2 Samuel 23 to draw us right back to this moment in 2 Samuel chapter 7. In other words, when we read 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 11, and then see it all come to a conclusion in verse 16, we We can now see that these words are divine promises from God, which are nothing short of an eternal covenant given to us by God. Now, we go from there back into verse 2. We see that David wants a place for the people to be able to gather and to worship God. Why? Because David knew and understood that his kingdom would not be established, nor would his own line endure unless divine rule is acknowledged appropriately within Israel. So we see that the Davidic king under God's headship will drive the people to worship the true God of the universe. Again, David's intentions are pure in recognizing that nothing can be done apart from God being king. Now, we're going to see this as well in God's own words to David in verse 8, when he says that David should be a prince over my people Israel. Now, this begs the question, why call David a prince when Israel clearly wanted a king? Well, God does this because the prince as established by god will live a life of service and in service to the real king of israel and that king is god he alone is king god does not will not ever share his throne with anyone or anything God does not and will not abdicate and remove himself from the throne, nor is God ever the appointed servant. He is sovereign, he is supreme, he is the creator of all things, and he is the king of the universe. And at the end of times, he alone will be the judge. It's at this point we have to ask ourselves, so where where does the covenant promise come in from God? Where is this covenant love that God speaks of? Well, the answers again can be found in our text. If you look at verse 9, God says, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. You see, God, by his love, establishes the lineage of David. He promises to to make the line of David great. Now, would they all be great? Clearly not. The Davidic line would fail, but this was not a failure by God. Rather, it was a failure of kings and leaders in terms of their faithfulness or their lack thereof to God. He moves on to verse 10 in 2 Samuel chapter seven and God says, and I will appoint a place for, for my people Israel and will plant them. In other words, God tells them that he will provide for his people. You see, it is God's plan to establish for them a firm foundation. And then we move into verse 11. And again, we see God say, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Now, man, what an incredible offer from God. A people who have been at war for most of David's kingship are now going to find themselves in the midst of rest and in the midst of hope and in the midst of prosperity. In other words, they are now going to be able to establish themselves in the goodness of God by the grace of God for the glory of God. Now, again, we have to ask ourselves, this this covenant love, why is all of this important to the people? Well, again, the answer is found in what it is that God is doing. Notice that before God establishes his own home, before his permanent place is ever established, he says to us in verses six and seven that he will remain with his people. And again, he says that he will make sure that they are the ones who were first planted and that they are the ones who are established according to verses nine through 11. In other words, what God is telling us here is that he cares for his people. What other deity even comes close to our god who cares for us if you were to study any other religion any other deity these deities want to be served they want permanent fixtures built for them they want to be enshrined and they want to have temples and statues in their name and here's the reality all of these things will turn to ash and the only thing that will remain is god But now again, as we continue to look in our passage and we look again at verses 9 through 11, we have to ask ourselves at this moment, if it's not another deity, what other thing, what other person in our lives, what other other item that we have, what is it that can establish us the way God can. You see, no other thing in our life can care for us the way God does. In fact, as we've said before, in the, in the moment that it's going to matter the most, the moment where we are taking our final breath on this side of eternity, none of our stuff, none of our people will be able to save us in that moment because when we take our last breath here and close our eyes on this side of eternity we will open them in glory and our almighty God will be there Now, again, if I were underlining in my Bible, and i got to be honest with you, I don't underline in this Bible that I'm using right now. This is the Bible that I preach from. Um, It is written in big print uh, because, as uh, Brother Rick constantly reminds me, I am... Uh, fairly certain that I cannot read small print anymore. So thank you, Rick, for pointing that out. Uh, So for that reason, I don't underline in this Bible. However, if I did, the other reason why I don't underline in the Bible is because I'm left-handed. I am one of those left-handed people who can throw a nasty curveball, but I can't write. When I write, it looks like the handwriting of a four-year-old. In fact, I'm at this point envious of my five-year-old, who I believe writes better than me. Um, I know that I'm not a very good writer. In fact, Corey often comes into the office, and when I write things on the dry erase board, uh, by God's grace and his goodness, Corey looks upon it and with love and mercy says, Pastor, would you like for me to write that for you? And uh, for a while, I thought he was doing it because he was a good friend. I quickly found out that he was doing it because he was a better friend to the staff and wanted him to be able to see, read, and understand what was being written, correct? That's good. See, there we go. So we cleared that up. Either way, if I were underlining in my Bible, I would go back to verses 9 through 11, and I would underline all of the I will statements. Because you see, it's in these statements where we find God's covenant love. Because here's the thing that we can know. If God says that he is going to do something, then we can rest assured that the word of God tells us that it has been Done. And because God tells us that He's going to do something, knowing that what God says He will do, He has already done, we can rest today in knowing that what God has promised for us, He can and will do again. But again, we have to ask, what does this have to do with us today? Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm glad you asked because you are obviously reading my notes. Now, I want you to pay careful attention. This this message today has been unique and different from what we normally do together. Normally, we work verse by verse, and because I want to make sure we understand the scriptures and what's being taught. But today, I want to separate the application a little bit, because I want to make sure we understand what God's covenant means for us. Now, again, I want to acknowledge The Bible is not about us, okay? It is about the greatness and the holiness and the supremacy of God, all right? So when you look at stories of David and you look at stories like David versus Goliath, Goliath does not represent our sin and we are not David. Rather, David represents the glory of God and what God can do to overcome all things that we think are obstacles that God can ultimately just bring to ruin. And he can do it by throwing a stone. So you see, this book is about God. However, there are moments where we can see how different promises and different parts of this scripture ultimately apply to us today and not only gaining a greater understanding of what God has called us to, but also helping us see what it is that God has promised us um, throughout scripture. So we are here and we have seen God's covenant for David and for his people, but now we need to realize that as we see 2 Samuel in light of the gospels, we can now see that this covenant applies for us as well. So let's just take a look at this for a moment. Covenant love number one that I want to point out to you. God tells us in 2 Samuel that he will establish and make the line of David great. This is true. But it's also true that the lineage is not perfect. But let's look at the line of David for a moment as found in Matthew chapter one. We clearly see that this is the line of David. We see it because David is mentioned in verses six and again in verses 17. But look at who is also there. We see our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in verse 16 and verse 17. So God did make David great, and he made his line even greater. Because from the Davidic covenant, as mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we get our true king, and his name is Jesus. And we know that it is Jesus's name that shall be great, and it's Jesus's name that will be above all This is what would lead Paul to proclaim to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 2 verses 9 through 11. He says, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, David's line was great, but it wasn't because of David. It was because of God's grace done for God's glory. And by God's glory, he established his kingdom through his Son, who is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This leads us to covenant promise number two that we see in 2 Samuel chapter seven is this. God will dwell among his people. Man, I gotta tell you, pay attention here because this story just keeps getting better for the believers. You see, just as God was with his people in 2 Samuel chapter seven and promised to remain so, we see that God now keeps his promise to us today. If you look at John chapter one, verse 14 John writes, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In other words, God came in the form of flesh. He came in the form of his Son, Jesus Christ, to be with his people, but he wasn't done there. You see, God, through Jesus Christ, lived the sinless life. He died the sinner's death, and he rose again just as he promised. And then we get to Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. And listen to Jesus' final words here. He says, and behold. In other words, he says, hear this. This is that moment where we need to pay attention to what's about to be said. Jesus says, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So you see, just as God dwelt with David and his people in 2 Samuel chapter seven, Jesus Christ dwells among his chosen people in John chapter one, all the way through the gospels, even to the end in Matthew chapter eight, 28 verses 20. We see that Jesus took on their penalty. He paid that sin penalty. And now Christ is with us always until the very end of the age. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. This leads us to covenant promise number three that we see according to 2 Samuel chapter seven. And man, there's more, but we're we're just gonna stop here today, okay? (laughs) Not only will God dwell among his people, but pay attention to this one. God will give us rest. Can we just breathe that in for a moment? I mean, in the midst of COVID-19, in the midst of change and leadership in our country, in the midst of uncertainties about vaccines and whether we should or whether we shouldn't, in the midst of everybody having an opinion everywhere, wherever you turn, we can still look to God. Because he is still the same God who has given us rest. You see, God promised David the fighting would stop. God told David that the people would prosper as he remained with them. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean financial prosperity. I'm not speaking of that at all. I'm speaking more of of being the ones who receive the blessing of what it is that God gives us in our daily lives, which first and foremost starts with the fact that when we pray, our sovereign God hears us and he hears us because of his grace. I mean, think about that for a moment. If you're not keeping up with politics and COVID and you're looking for other articles right now, everybody's going crazy about the fact that two planets are about to align, something that only happens every 800 years. And I'm sitting there reading the same stuff and I'm like, look at what God can do. And if God, the the God who spoke this into existence, that's the same God who hears us when we pray to him. And it's the same God who promises us rest. You see, when we think about our own lives today, the reality is we live in a constant state of warfare. We are at war with the sin around us and, the war, and at war with sin that is within us. We are at war with this present darkness, according to Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Yet Jesus Christ enters the scene, and this is what he says to his disciples and what can be said of us today in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You see, God's plan for his people was to bring them to peace. To bring them to rest. That was his plan for David and his people. That is God's plan for us through Jesus Christ. And so it is good and right and proper for God to bring peace to us. You see, like God's promise states, God will give us rest. Now, this does not mean that all of a sudden, because of our faith, everything is going to get easier. But it does Now, mean that we have something to look forward to. We have a hope in what is coming. Man, what a joy it is knowing that God has promised us through Christ the rest that we long for and the rest that we need. So if you are living in a constant state of fear or a constant state of concern or a state of worry in this particular season, may I encourage you to take hope through God's covenant love because in his love you can and you will find rest so to answer the question that we asked from the beginning will we ever be able to do enough for god learn from david the answer is no what we build will fail our kingdoms will fail let me be a little more specific the United States will one day fail. Businesses will fail. Ambitions will fail. Even our families will not last forever. However, we serve a great God who gave us his son, that through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we now know that Jesus will never fail us, and he alone will last forever. So we may not ever be able to do enough, but that is the beauty of Jesus Christ's words when he was on the cross and he said, it is finished. You see, for us today as believers, Jesus is and always will be enough. You see, God doesn't need us. But by his grace, for his glory, he will use us. You see, God is the one who turns our lives into something beautiful. He's the one that turns our lives into something valuable. He turns it into something everlasting. And when we, his followers, we, his believers, when, when we desire for God to be great, it's in that moment that our lives will then have an eternal purpose and eternal value because we will be able to look to Christ and say, Lord, You are enough. So in this season, like David, let us rest in God's all-sufficient work. Let us answer when he calls us, and until he returns, let us find rest in God's covenant love. Thanks be to God for his grace, his mercy, the hope that can be found in knowing him, his promises, and the love that we can now rest in. Let's pray together.